Let's turn to Genesis 45. That's our chapter for today. I'm going to tell you in advance that this chapter, this chapter is probably the pinnacle of the story. This chapter is power-packed. I don't even get past the first verse before I start to well up. So I hope I make it through all of this today just fine, but let's read it together, and then we'll jump into what's here. The Bible says this, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be near, neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to save alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a Pharaoh to father and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have, there I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor or glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat of the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods. For the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver. That's going to equate out to somewhere around $2,500. So that's not a, 
a small token, and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows. Look at this. Remember when I made the comment to you that they were paranoid when they were worried he was going to try to take their donkeys before? Well, this is kind of an indication. Here's what he sends for his father at Pharaoh's behest. Ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away as they departed, and he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, and they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his, that is Jacob's heart, became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Let's pray together, shall we? Our Father, you have been so gracious to have privileged us not just to have your word, but to be able to have a format here at our church whereby we have an ABF time, we share the word of God, bless all the classes as they do that this morning. I think, Lord, in particular, of the great privilege it is to have this story of Joseph and for you to have brought us to this point in order that we might feast on what is here in your word this morning. I'm not up to it, Lord, so I can only pray that you will just speak through me, that you will just grant fresh cleansing and a, a sense of the presence of your spirit, a freedom and a liberty that just absolves me of any of my own weakness or shortfalls and helps me to be a blessing to people who are here today. We have such a momentous topic, such a momentous chapter and I pray that it will just glow in our hearts, that no one will go today without something <clears throat> that is helpful, that is instructive, that admonishes, that encourages. And I pray for the balance of the day also here at Community, that you will bless the services to follow. And now I pray that you will open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. And I pray that the word of the Lord may be glorified and have free course. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, if you look at the title of today's lesson, you see that I've entitled this A Tearful Reunion. There's just a flood tide of emotion that is released in this particular chapter. I mean, We've been talking about suspense building and suspense building and suspense building, and now you come to the climax, and it's just power-packed. It's just filled with emotion. I mean, it's, this is very much akin to a dam giving way, and in the wake of that, a torrent of water just flows down a stream or a river that's ill-prepared to handle that volume, and it's, it's just overwhelming. And that's what you have in this chapter. In fact, it is so overwhelming that when we notice verse number one, Joseph, it says, could not control himself. 
And why should it not be if you really think about this? Because think about what's going to take place in this chapter. We are going to have the story come to its climax in which we find a full and final reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. Now, I want you to think about that because it is a sad thing, isn't it? In this sin-cursed world in which we live, in this fallen world in which we live, and with the sinful natures that we have, they were constantly living with broken relationships. We're constantly living with people and situations around us, and some of it's our fault. Maybe a lot of it's our fault. Some of it's the fault of someone else. Some of it's a mixture of the two. But every time that happens, it's diminishing. It takes something away from us because God never intended that. I mean, if you really want to know what God wants for us in the Christian community, and even in the larger sense with our fellow man, all you have to think about was what it was like in the Garden of Eden. And I want you to have that backdrop before we even plunge into this today. What was it like in the Garden of Eden when there was no sin? When there was complete freedom there between the man and the woman? Complete freedom. I mean, they didn't have any arguments, they didn't have any spats, they didn't have any fallings out. And when God came, there was no obstruction, there was no alienation, there was no rift in the relationship with God. We, we read that phrase about how God came in the cool of the day and, and walked with them. Can you imagine that? Uninterrupted fellowship with everyone around you. Nothing that ever hinders that. An uninterrupted, unbroken, untarnished fellowship with God. We don't have it in this world. I mean, it's what we strive for, but we don't have it in this world. And that's why I think heaven is going to be such... It's like this chapter. There's just going to be a torrent of emotion that's released. Now I want you to think about something else, and I'm not trying to be suggestive, but I want you to think about a relationship. Maybe you've already done that. I want you to think about a broken relationship. And think about how that diminishes us. Think about the burden that you carry as a result of that, even if it's not really your fault, even if you've tried to make restitution, even if you've tried to do everything you can and you just can't get the thing fixed. And you carry that around, and it's a burden. Hopefully there's no guilt, because hopefully you've done everything you can do. You know, the Bible does say this, as much as lieth, peaceably, uh, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. You know why it says that? It says that because there's two sides to the problem, and you can only control you. But even when you think about the original situation where, and I don't want to get off into the weeds, but... Whenever you think about the original situation and God's intent, for example, in marriage, and the Pharisees and the Jewish people threw up in Jesus' face, well, then why did Moses write, give her a bill of divorcement and send her away? Do you remember what he said? He said, well, Moses did write you a bill of divorce, didn't tell you to write a bill of divorcement for the hardness of your heart. But from the beginning, it was not so. What's that telling us? It's telling us that when sin comes into relationships and disrupts them, that's not what God really wants. Think about it this way. I can go forever on this. I better shut up. You think about this. I mean, in the, we're, we're made in the image and likeness of God, are we not? So when you think about what God has in the Trinity, 
Is there ever a day when the Holy Spirit doesn't get along with the Son? Is there ever a day when the Father is mad with the Holy Spirit? No, beloved. There's nothing there ever, ever and always. There's nothing there but complete and total harmony. And now we realize what sin has really done in this world. So when we come to this chapter, it's not, it doesn't catch us off guard at all that when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, it just has profound consequences. And we're going to look for these consequences across three particular areas. When you go back to chapter 43, this is how I developed the, the lesson there, because there's all the players. And this is already a lesson to us as well, because when you have broken relationships, and when you have these things that are not right like this, it isn't just me that's affected. It's not just you that's affected. It's the parties involved, and then it spreads out even farther from there, because think about at home. I mean, their families were affected by this. It affected everyone, what they had done. And so we're going to talk about Joseph, we're going to talk about the brothers, and then we're going to talk about Jacob at the end of the story again. And I... I love it all. Well, let's first of all talk, some, talk about, so we're going to have the opportunity, I think, today to get a little bit of a reminder. I, you know, I, I can only do so much, and <laughs> I'm limited by my, my own weaknesses and problems, but don't you just long for this full and final reconciliation? What's it look like? And we, we have an opportunity to see that in the story today. So, first of all, let's talk about uncertain brothers. Now, does the word uncertain strike you as maybe being a little bit weak or anemic? Yeah, I, me too. I would make that observation. Don't know what else to call it. They don't know what to do with this. They totally don't know what to do with this. I mean, think about the scene. Joseph has everyone go out. And then he utters a pretty simple statement to them, I am Joseph. You talk about getting knocked over. You talk about ten bowling pins being knocked over by a perfect strike ball. That's it right there. And when we finally come down to the end of verse number three, look what it says. His brothers could not answer him. And the, the ESV translates here, for they were dismayed at his presence. But this is a very strong word. Those of you who remember and are familiar with the King James text, remember it says troubled. Troubled is the translation the King James uses. This word literally means to be horrified. So it's kind of left up to the translator. I mean, you've got to kind of try to divine the context and figure out how strong is the usage of the word in this particular case. And so you see some variation here in how good translations have handled this. The ESV uses dismayed, so does the New American Standard. King James uses troubled. But look at this. The NIV and the Legacy Standard Bible. Now, the Legacy Standard Bible is newer. That's sort of a, a collaboration between the Lockman Foundation and John MacArthur. So you're, you're use, roughly using the, the uh, New American Standard text, but with some input from... It's an interesting uh, collaboration. We, again, not time for that. But they actually choose to use the word terrified. I'm fine with all of them. In fact, I'm not so sure that terrified is probably not closer to what we need to understand here. 
how do we explain this? Why did they react that way? Why, why were they just completely upended by this? Well, think about this. You know, it's one thing to sit down with somebody who's talking to you about a situation, and, and maybe, maybe you're the person who's involved in it, but the other party that's involved in it is not there. Somebody's talking to you about this, and you know they're trying to help or whatever, so they talk to you about this, and after a while, you kind of become convicted, and you say to them something like this, oh, well, you know, I probably was wrong there. I should probably go speak to them. That's a good start, but it's a horse of another color to actually be there with the person you did that to or said that to and tell them that. That takes some courage. That takes some grace. That takes the power of God working in our lives. We have to jump over our pride. We have to jump over that hardness of heart that I referred to earlier. And so this is the situation here. I mean, when they were talking and made this true confession, Judah being their spokesman in chapter 44 that we saw last week, he didn't know they were talking to Joseph. And it's a different thing. It's a good thing. It's the start of the thing. It's where it's got to start. It's exactly what needs to happen. But now, now it's like, oh boy, there's no maneuvering room now. So it's quite understandable, and you know what? Before we leave this, I'm going to show you something else. So if what they had done to Joseph had terminated, do you remember the scene back there in chapter 37 when he caught up to them? They'd, they'd gone on to Dothan and, uh, with the flocks, and uh, some man told him where they were, and he went up there and finally found them, they saw him a ways off. You remember that? And what did they say? Behold, this mock, this dreamer cometh. Well, if they just called him names and ridiculed him, I mean, that's not good. That doesn't help your relationship with people to do that. But that's relatively insignificant <laughs> in comparison to what they really did. So, I mean, you know, I don't mean to diminish sin, but little sins are one thing. Bigger sins are other things, and this is profound what happens here. I mean, they haven't just called him a name. They've betrayed him. They've sold him into bondage. They were ready to kill him. And hadn't it not been for the, had it not been for the intercession of Reuben and finally Judah, who's, Judah, who's at that point in the story at a pretty low ebb in his life, he's magnanimous enough to say, well, let's don't kill him. What profit in, is there for us in that? And when he says that, he actually uses a, a financial term. What profit? You know, <laughs> might as well see if we can't get a little something out of this. 20 shekels was what they got. So given the severity of their sin, it's not surprising at all that they struggle with this. And they would for years. This is really interesting. Look over in chapter 50, because now you come completely to the end of the story. And this is the scene where Jacob has passed away. Their father is finally gone. And we look at verse 15, and it says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. I'm not quite sure how to take that. We'll get to that. We'll talk more about it. I hope that's not them making stuff up again. 
but we can't really solve it one way or another. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please, it's like, here we go again. All these years later, please forgive the transgression of the servants of God, of of the God of your father. And what was Joseph's reaction to it? Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And and Joseph reassures them again. So what have we seen in the first part? I mean, you you can't really expect to escape the consequences of your sin. You can expect to be forgiven for your sin. Forgiveness is what they desperately need. So we're thinking about what's reconciliation look, look like. What's full and final reconciliation look like? Well, we're seeing two things. Back in chapter 44, it takes genuine confession. But it also requires forgiveness. They desperately need this. I mean, they're horrified. They're terrified. They don't know what to do. They they don't know what's next. I mean, he could have, if he had wanted to, called the guys in there and say, throw these bums in jail. I'll figure out what to do with them anon. But you know, what they have desperate need of, they get. And I want to tell you something, folks. That's exactly what we owe people when they come to us with a sincere and genuine apology. It says, the Bible tells us, this is one of my favorite verses in the New Testament, and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. This is a big statement, and I don't mean to be preaching, but I'm going to tell you something right now. It doesn't matter what it is. You have a Christian obligation to forgive your brother if your brother comes seeking it. And even before your brother comes seeking it, you need to have a forgiving spirit in your heart or you know who's going to carry the load around, you know who's going to pay, you know who's going to be weighted down by this. You are. It's completely counterproductive to hold grudges and be angry with people, which is another reason that Paul tells us in Ephesians, be angry and sin not, let not the sun go down on your wrath. You have to deal with this stuff, folks, because anger in our hearts is is such a potent force that if we don't deal with it, it can become destructive. Unresolved anger turns into bitterness. And we don't want to go there. But you know something? Another reason we owe it to them is because that's exactly what God did for us. I mean, this is overwhelming. You never have to worry about it. I love that verse in John. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, David came to him with murder and adultery. And when he was commemorating the forgiveness that he received from God, in Psalm 51, he said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise, refuse. You've never come to God in your Christian experience. No, you've never come to God in your Christian experience and confessed your sins. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, you've never done that and not had him forgive you. 
So we're in a bad way when someone else comes to ask for that and we won't forgive them. We're like that story that Jesus told in the Gospels. You remember the king who had all the money and he had two servants and one guy owed him 10,000 talents. Now, talent's a measure of weight, so you try to figure the value of that out, you have to figure, is it silver, is it gold? I don't care how you figure it. 10,000 talents is an astronomical sum. He couldn't pay it back. And the king was ready to throw him in jail. And what did he say? Have mercy on me and I will pay thee all. And he had no hope of paying him all. And so what did the king say back? As he frankly saw that he couldn't repay it, he frankly forgave him all. What did he do? He went out and found a fellow servant that owed him 100 pence. That's, that's peanuts. It's 100 denarii, which is 100 days wages. Grabbed him by the throat. Pay me what you owe me. The guy said the very same thing that he said to the king. Have patience with me and I will pay you all. But he would not it says. Can't go there. Can't be that way. Got to deal with that. And we got to move on. So they desperately need the assurance that, that Joseph is going to forgive them. If I'm looking for a word for Joseph, I don't have any apology for this word. Grace. Forgiveness proceeds from grace. Right? God forgave you, it proceeds from His grace. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. I didn't either. If you have it, you have it because God is a God of grace. So it takes grace to do this. And you know what? We aren't born with grace. We're born with exactly the opposite. We're born with hardness of heart and pride and selfishness, meanness. So Joseph, I mean... You, I, I just, I, it, it, Joseph never ceases to amaze me. It's just like, this guy is a sharp cookie. He's not only smart up here, he's perceptive. And he sees exactly what's going on. As soon as he sees their reaction, look what he does. I mean, you talk about a tender touch. He senses this need right away. And what does he say? Come near to me. And you know what? Talking about a torrent of emotion, the brothers can't talk. They're so caught up in their own emotion, they can't even speak. Joseph is so caught up in his emotion, he can't shut up. When he starts talking, he goes for ten verses. I love it. I mean, that's what I'm trying to tell you folks. It's just going to pour out one day. And maybe even in this life we'll have some opportunities to see what that's like when God really works in some situations. It's just going to pour out. It's like a torrent. But I think the most impressive thing you have to observe, first of all, is that in nothing he says, there's, there's not the slightest hint of anger. There's not the slightest hint of bitterness. There's not the slightest hint of, you sorry rascals. Nothing. And I already told you the only way you can explain that is grace. But I will tell you something that this was years in the making. It's not that Joseph is superhuman. Don't read that into anything I say. What's going on in here is you got to remember this is 22 years later. 13 years until he stood before Pharaoh. Seven years of famine. 
and this is the second year he says that, right in this chapter. 22 years. You don't think he grew in grace during that time? You don't think he matured during those trials during that time? Of course he did. You don't think that some of those days when he was in jail and he had some bad hair days. Like the fellow said, I'll guarantee you. He's not superhuman. So how did God give him the victory? I mean, that's what you and I need to know, isn't it? How can we have victory over these things? Well, the theological answer is grace, but the practical answer is look at this. I want you to see something in the course of his little speech here. He says, And now do not be distressed or angry, verse 5, with yourselves, for God sent me before you. Verse 6, down to verse 7, And God sent me before you. And so in verse 8, this is the culmination of this opening remark that he makes to them, So it was not you but God. Not you, God. What's that mean, folks? It means this, in simple, practical terms. You can sit there and I can sit here all day long and fixate on the people who have done wrong to us. And if you dwell on that, you are going to be an unhappy camper and you're going to make everybody around you unhappy too. Or you can begin to wonder what God is doing. And maybe you don't see it all. But you have this confidence because you know that God is never anything but good. And God is never anything but kind. And if he lets something come into our lives, he has a purpose. And ultimately, it will be proven to be both good and kind. Even though most of the time in the midst of these things, it doesn't look that way here. But Joseph had the dreams, and he didn't understand them at first, and now he's come to a fuller understanding and appreciation, and he can see a little bit. See, you think Joseph sees the big picture. He still only sees part of it, but he sees enough. He sees enough to know that God had a... a, And God has the power to take even the wrath of man and cause it to praise him. Don't you love it? I mean, God is so big. God can take wrongdoing. That doesn't mean you should go out here and do it. Give God a chance to show how great he is. No, don't do that because you're going to have the consequences to deal with. But God is big. God is powerful. And you can't get up earlier in the morning than God. God already knows where the whole thing is headed and God can take... You know, I have certain verses that I I look at them... Sometimes I think of them more because of... I see the national applications of them, but (laughs) one of mine is Job 5.13. He taketh the wise in their own craftiness, and the counsel of the froward is carried headlong, the schemer. What's it mean? It just means that you know what, especially when I'm thinking about what's going on nationally, you know, There can be people that are untruthful, that pull all kinds of stuff, dishonest, deceit. I mean, whatever you think, I'm not going to get into it. But you can't get up earlier than God. And ultimately, God will rule and overrule in those things for his glory. So that's a big part of it. Now, there's something else going on here. 
did, you probably didn't think of this, but this is not a small factor. When Joseph says, make everyone go out for me, and then he starts talking, do you realize this is the first time he, before he used an interpreter with them? What kind of effect do you think it had on them when all of a sudden this guy that you still don't know is your brother yet starts talking Hebrew? And I know he's doing this because there is no one else there to interpret once those people go out of the room. So he's shifted completely. He, he really is making himself known to his brethren. Then you get down to where he says it himself, down in verse 10 or 11, let's get down there in this story. And he says, um, no, it's 12. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. That's powerful, folks. It's just, it's just another touch of the genuineness of this. It's all meant to reassure them. It, uh, reassure them. It's all meant for them to know that they are forgiven. And the crowning touch of this genuineness is the tangible display of affection. I mean, when it gets down to the end, they still can't talk. They still don't know what to do with this. But, you know, tears are a universal language. And you really don't need a universal translator. Tears are a universal language. And almost invariably, you can tell what's being communicated. Not that there's not sometimes room for mistakes, but it, it conveys something. And it, it's very natural with Joseph. Then he fell upon his brother, verse 14, Benjamin, and wept upon his neck, kissed all his brothers, and wept upon them. Look, in the very next statement says, after that his brothers talked with him. So you can't fake that stuff. Not like that. Now there's one more thing. Allah, Steve, Job, Steve Jobs. Just one more thing. So looking at this subject of true reconciliation, full and final, two things we've seen, needs confession, needs forgiveness. He's assured them of this. But you talk about an astute, perceptive individual. After he gets done telling them and giving them the gifts and telling them you go take you know, the wagons and all this business and do all that, he makes this little statement at the end of verse 24. Look at the verse. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Now, is this a statement? Does this kind of catch you off guard? Do not quarrel on the way. Oh, they would never quarrel, would they? I I, I, I'm partial, I, have, I must admit, of course, it's, you know, like 50 years worth, but I'm sort of partial to the King James translation there, even though it says, don't fall out by the way. Well, you know, that expression has some different meanings. You know, some of those people say and we say somebody fell out. That's not what this means. It's talking about a falling out. You're at a falling out with someone. What's he saying to them? Don't be getting down the road and start bickering among yourselves. Why would they do that? I can hear Reuben. I told you guys.
I can hear Judah. They quarreled back then. They couldn't even agree what dastardly deed to do to him. Well, if you'd done this, well, if you did that. And you know what, folks? <laughs> it's unprofitable. It doesn't serve any purpose. And Joseph knew that. And you know what? Here's the thing of it. If God has forgiven you, I love that verse in Philippians, forgetting those things which are behind. Now you can't forget in the sense that you just make it go out of your mental process, but there's no profit in sitting there and haggling and having self-recriminations. You did the wrong thing, you were forgiven for the wrong thing, buried in the deepest sea. Yes, that's good enough for me. I shall live eternally. Praise God, my sins are gone. Put it aside. You can't do anything about it except for living right and making whatever amends you need to make from that point forward. So don't fall out, by the way. You've been forgiven. Take it and enjoy it. Well, we, time's always after us here. Overwhelmed. Now, I'm satisfied with that word. What about old Jacob? We haven't really thought about him because we've been a little bit maybe. I've talked about it a little bit. But, you know, most of our focus has been on Joseph, so we haven't thought too much about the old man. But, you know, when you think about him, think about the wrong done to him. I mean, they lied to him about his boy. He'd lived 22 years thinking that boy was dead, torn apart by wild beasts. But at the same point, had begun to become just a little suspicious of them. Now, I want you to think about this. Now, I know it's not the same day with all the crime techniques and so forth that we have today, but, you know, these guys were not dumb. They weren't cavemen. That's a big mistake. You know, that's modern man. And, oh, modern man is so fixed on his accomplishments and his technology and is filled with pride. It's a huge mistake to read back into it that the people of the Bible were lesser people. They weren't. I don't believe that. Go back and read the earlier chapters of Genesis about these guys that knew metallurgy and music and all that stuff. I don't know metallurgy and music. I know enough about music to run everybody off. I know a little more than that. But you get the point. I mean... He's been distraught. He's been not at his best. He's been suspicious. And you know what? The Bible doesn't take any time really telling us about what they said, but obviously at this point he knows the truth. Joseph can't be down there and alive and them not have been liars. It's impossible. Joseph is still alive. His ruler, verse 26, over all the land. And he finally knows the truth. You know what, folks? I'm just saying. There's going to come a day. It might not be in this life, but there's going to come a day when everybody here, we finally know the truth. We finally know what really was going on. What God was really doing. 
could be a little uncomfortable if we hadn't done some things to make things right along the way with people. What about this decision he made to send Benjamin? That came really hard for him. In fact, it involved an area of his life that really wasn't under God's control at that point. He wouldn't send the boy. Finally, he agrees to send him. And he looks out when he sees the wagons. Forgive me, but there's a parallel in an earlier story with one of the patriarchs. There's Isaac. That's Jacob's father. The servant has gone off with the camel train and a bunch of trinkets, I shouldn't say trinkets, they were worth a lot of money, jewelry, in search of a bride for Isaac. The Bible says at the end of chapter 24, he went out into the field at the end of the day to meditate. You can only imagine what he was thinking about. Wonder, what, wonder what's going on, wonder a bride, is she going to come? When, how long is this guy going to take? And he looks up, and the Bible says this, Behold, he saw the camels coming. Wow, I bet his heart fluttered. I bet his heart did flips. Not to mention when he saw Rebecca get down off that camel. And now Joseph sees these wagons. That's exactly what it says. It's almost like a repeat, except it's not camels, it's wagons. And when he saw, verse 27, the wagons, he didn't believe those guys at first. That kind of shows you what the level was with them. But he sees Benjamin, he sees the wagons, and you know, folks, there's something here about surrender because it's a principle of discipleship. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Lots of times God requires us to think that we have to lose something so he can give it back just to show us how good and how gracious he is. Benjamin returns, and here's the last thing. Joseph is alive after all. And you might think that this is, I, 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 I love this, because we get to the end and verse 28 says, Israel said, it is enough. And I've been describing this whole chapter as a torrent of emotions. Everybody is profoundly affected by it. And this is what Joseph says, it is enough. Sounds kind of weak, doesn't it? Does it to you? Sound a little weak? Maybe could have come up with something a little better than that? Well, the problem is with trying to bring over the full meaning of that expression into English. It is enough is, a, is an adequate translation of it. But in Hebrew, the word is rav, and that word translated enough is rav, and that, that particular word, it means great. It means numerous. So we just don't have a good rendering of this because, just like we don't really have a good rendering from when, when Joseph first says, is my father still alive? Well, sure he knew he was alive. That wasn't what he meant. He meant, how's my father doing? Is he really doing well? And so when you look at this, I mean, it's just like what he's saying is, this is so great. This is beyond my most wild imagining. This is more than I have proof. Genesis chapter 48. Verse 11. He says later to Joseph, Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. 
and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. So, where are we? Reconciliation, its foundation is confession and forgiveness, its fruit is blessings beyond what you can even imagine. And I like to leave it on this. Pharaoh said a lot more than he knew. Let's look at those verses again. Verse 18, take your father and your households and come and I will give you the best. And then in verse 20, have no concern for your goods. And again, I like the King James translation here. Regard not your stuff. Doesn't that sound like something we need to hear? Don't worry about your stuff. Because the best is yet to come. And I'm just telling you, folks, you ain't seen nothing yet. You can get a taste of it if God brings about a situation where a broken relationship in this life is really healed. But my, 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 when we get to glory and all that stuff is fixed in a moment of time, and we see the magnificent plan and wisdom of God, it's going to be beyond your wildest dreams, and I have to quit. Father, please bless us. Please encourage us with how worthwhile living like you want us to live is. How much less we are when we diminish ourselves by being hard of heart, unwilling to forgive. Works of mighty works. And in the meantime, give us the faith to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.